Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the place where we drill deep into the world of oil, the world of diesel, because that's what makes the trucks run and the trains run. We're going to talk about trains today a little bit. Actually, going to talk about trains a lot. It's also the place where we drill deep into an issue of the week with somebody besides me. And the lucky person I'm going to speak to this week is my colleague, Kevin Hill. Like a lot of people in the trucking world, we've all been looking at the names and the numbers that came out of the release of data on the Paycheck Protection Program and how trucking has been impacted by it. We'll be here with Kevin to speak about that in a few minutes. So we're going to first, as we always do, turn our attention to the world of oil and diesel. We aren't going to talk about prices or supply because right now the price is kind of dull, very stable, slowly climbing, but not as much as crude and supply is plentiful. We like to talk here on Drilling Deep, though, about the other part of the oil world that impacts the trucking world, and that's moving the stuff around. We're also going to focus a little here on the rails because right now that is very important. This past week, a federal judge took steps to order the closure of the Dakota Access Pipeline. You know, unlike battles over the construction of new pipelines like the the famous or infamous Keystone XL Pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline actually was in operation moving more than a half a million barrels per day of crude oil. It's been operating since 2017. That is a pretty big pipeline. It takes crude oil out of the Bakken field in North Dakota, North Dakota, a little bit Montana, a little bit up to Saskatchewan. It drops it down to a big pipeline terminal crossroads in a town called Patoka, Illinois, and then it heads down to the U.S. Gulf Coast to be refined. But now, as a result of this judge's action, it needs to file another environmental impact statement And there is talk that if it ever does get moving again, it might be a year before it reopens. And that's if it does reopen. There's a possibility, you know, that it might not reopen. Investors are starting to walk away from these projects because the regulatory problems associated with them, given all the protests against pipelines, are starting to become significant issues for the companies that are being asked to sink billions of dollars into them. Just in the past week, a big natural gas pipeline up in the U.S. Northeast was put on the shelf. Companies also are starting to deal with investor desire for what are known as ESG principles. That's environmental, social, and governance principles. Actually, and and there's another question, kind of the S could also be viewed as standing for sustainability. And the question is, how many hydrocarbons are we going to be using 30 years from now? That definitely plays a part in that issue about sustainability. But you know who's got to be really happy right now? The railroads. Because they had this great business in the early teens, starting around 2011, 2012, moving crude oil by rail out of the Bakken and some other areas of the country and bringing it either to the big West, Midwest delivery point in Cushing, Oklahoma, down to the Gulf Coast, out to the East Coast, or out to the West Coast, really everywhere except the middle of the country because that's where they had the oil. In October 2014, movements by rail out of what is known as Pad 2, which is essentially the upper Midwest, and it includes the Bakken, uh, they were they totaled 17.9 million barrels that month. In April, just a couple months ago, the last month we have data for, that figure was down to 3.6 million barrels. The main reason for that was the construction of pipelines. It's always cheaper to move a barrel of oil on a pipeline than it is by train. And also, I'm telling you right now, it's a lot safer. The Dakota Access Pipeline was one of those pipelines that changed the landscape. The original Keystone line was another, not the Keystone XL, but the first one called just called Keystone. There's a line called the Double H line that also took crude out of the bucket. The number that drives crude onto rails 
the number that makes a long, slow journey for oil work, because it takes a lot longer moving on a series of rail cars than it does on a pipeline. The number that's key is the spread between the price of Brent crude and the price of West Texas Intermediate crude. Bakken crude gets sold as a differential to WTI. When it gets shipped to the U.S. East Coast or the Gulf Coast, though, it has to compete with crude sold on a Brent basis coming in from maybe the Gulf of Mexico or imported crude from the North Sea or uh, or really any part of the world. If the Brent WTI spread is wide enough to justify the cost of rail transportation, it will do so. If it's too narrow, it won't. So in the first half of 2019, that spread tended to be about 8 to $10. That's now less than $3. Back in the day, uh, when crude by rail first started up as a thing, it was as much as $25. And you can imagine when it gets out wide, it really incentivizes the movement of crude by rail. Here's the bad news for truckers. The flatbed work moving pipe to building new pipelines is not going to be a growth industry for a while. If you had planned on uh, building, you know, you put hauling pipe or hauling other products to build that natural gas pipeline that I mentioned to build uh, the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, that, that opportunity is not going to be around. There, these are heavy construction jobs. They throw off good employment opportunities for trucks. But for railroads, uh, these are going to be some good times. Operators in the Bakken with their half a million barrel a day pipeline now cut off to them. They're either going to shut in production or they're going to move it by rail. There were a lot of rail facilities built in the Bakken back in the boom. So the capacity and the infrastructure is there. Railroads are dying something to replace all the lost business from the coal collapse. The price of diesel is so cheap that they can't argue to shippers that moving freight by rail is going to save a huge amount of money on fuel. No, they're going to go after this oil business all in. But of course, that takes people. The railroads have been pursuing precision railroading now for the past year or more. One of the main thrusts of precision railroading is holding down the number of employees. You can see that they have done that when you look at the employment numbers in the rail industry. Are the railroads going to start adding to them again for this opportunity? It may be that the chance to get back into the oil game in a big way is far too lucrative to pass up. So keep your eye on that Brent WTI spread. It hasn't been interesting or really of note now for quite some time once all these pipelines came on. But I think for the railroad industry right now, it might be the most important number out there. We're going to move on now on drilling deep to the Big story of the week, the massive amount of data of the week, the massive amount of data of the year. And we're talking about the disclosure of the individual borrowers under the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, the Small Business Administration had announced about two weeks ago that it was going to reveal that. They never said when they were going to. And suddenly on Monday morning, there it was. And Kevin, I heard from you pretty quickly. Got to jump on this, right? So our guest here is Kevin Hill. He's my colleague. He is the president and founder of Carrier Lists. And he's also the director of research at Freight Waves. So, Kevin, first of all, um, as I said, it's been quite a week. Why don't you talk a little bit about Carrier List? Because I think it's particularly relevant here since Carrier List is a big, big source of data on who's a carrier out there. And you know that comes into play when you start looking at all this PPP data. It certainly does. And thank you for having me on, John. It's always a pleasure. So yeah, carrier lists, we compile carrier profiles for intermediaries, uh, 3PLs, freight brokers mainly. We have a few shipper customers as well. 
And it's all about what kind of trailer modes, uh, updated contact information, and preferred lanes. Um, you know, and, and that's through a series of phone calls that, that we make to, to regularly update our list of about 30,000 uh, carriers now, mostly running between five and 100 trucks, kind of that mid-sized market where you have a dispatch office and, and uh, enough capacity to handle really consistent freight. Uh, not the massive amount of owner-operators out there that would take forever to call. Uh, but this this slice of the market, between five and 100 trucks, that, that account for about a third of actual capacity out there. The other thirds in the, the, the big fleets, um, the, the enterprise fleets, uh, or over, say, 500 trucks. And also in the what I call the micro fleets, between one and three trucks. Uh, and it breaks down about a, a third, a third, and a third, roughly, on capacity. So a lot of those carriers that you'd find on carrier lists uh, or kind of the, the, the meat of, of what the, the PPP loans were all about. And uh, there's quite a few of those carriers on uh, in this database. Now let's, let's talk about what data was revealed this week. So uh, the data that was revealed at first, well, I shouldn't say at first because it was all at the same time, but the one that everybody plunged into and the one that was far more interesting were for loans that were $150,000 or more. And it was more interesting because the identity of the borrower was revealed then. So you could play around with those numbers as I did. And, and uh, it was sorted by the NAICS category of 48, which is trucking and warehousing. And uh, I counted about 3,200 companies that got loans that were in the uh, in the category of uh, truck, tra- you know, long haul trucking truckload, long haul trucking LTL. I mean, the number of total loans uh, that were given under the 48 sector was something like uh, you know 20,000 loans in the 48 sector. Um, the uh, about 25 truckload companies. And about eight LTL companies got loans over $5 million. Kevin, when you looked at some of this data, this industry is so fragmented that it's kind of hard to look at a name and say, oh, I didn't expect to see them. Or, But but did anything jump out at you? What were some of your thoughts in reviewing the data? I, I think it's I, so, the, the real thoughts was it, it's so hard to, to really get a grasp on because there's there's so many. And just in the, the, the 4.8 codes and I think the 5.4 codes, which are – 3PLs, logistics, warehousing. Uh, there, there's just so many records that it is hard to uh, to, to sit down and and find uh, clear points of uh, of of where to even start. And that's yeah. the you know the, 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 the hardest part about it is is to uh, get the data to where you can actually analyze it. And then you know I don't know how many how many loans were were given. Uh, but this is a massive file, and just uh, the trucking and, and transportation sector is uh, just a massive data dump. Now, remember that that one file that we're talking about is for loans of one hundred fifty thousand dollars and up. So it's interesting to play through because uh, you know you can you can find names, and people always love to read about names of their competitors or companies they know. The other big data dump that day was a state-by-state spreadsheet that came down for all the loans under $150,000. And let's point out that the that about two-thirds of the funds that were dispersed by the Small Business Administration went out in those $150,000 loans and up. 
but about um, something like 80% of the actual loans, if, if you count every loan as having a value of one, which of course it doesn't, but um, you know something like 83% of those loans went out for numbers below $150,000. On that spreadsheet, everything was revealed except the name of the, the borrower. So um, you know, it's it's sort of valuable to information. Not too many people can go through it, but I think here's the most relevant number. Uh, Aaron Terrazas, the amazing uh, analyst out of Convoy, uh, went through that number. He went through all the states of the, the small loans and then combined it with the big ones. And he estimates that about 8 to 9% of the trucking companies in America got a loan. That's kind of a small number. It is a small number. And that was 150000 and above, or did he do the whole breadth? He, he did the whole thing. He pulled them all together. Okay. You know, and then I guess he compared it against uh, FIMSA data on the number of companies that are registered with FIMSA as carriers. Yeah, so that, that is a relatively small number. If you look at it, you know, the, the trucking industry is so fragmented, but there's so many entities out there that uh, you would think that it'd be a little bit more than than the 8 or 9%. But uh, I guess that's that's good news in a lot of ways that uh, a lot of uh, trucking companies didn't think they, they needed to, to, to have a PPP loan. Um, I, what do you think about that, John? Well, I, I think, I mean, a, a couple of things that's interesting here. When you look at the loans that were dispersed, again, I'm just talking about the $150,000 and up because – I have not had time to go through 50 states worth of smaller data. Um, But when you look at the 150,000 and and up, the date of the loan overwhelmingly was in April. And if you remember, the program opened up about April 5th or 6th, and it was shut down after about three weeks because it ran out of money. Um, Some more money came through. Uh, It ran through June 28th and uh, was it June 30th, I guess June 30th. And it still had about $130 billion left on the table. That has been extended. So if you want to get a loan uh, between, between now, you can, you can apply. Um, what was interesting was that the, the, the trucking industry, or at least that whole 48 sector of trucking and warehouse, the loans in the 150K and up category were all overwhelmingly done in April. And I think that means this industry really kind of got together, got itself together and said, okay, let's do this right away. And I just wonder if all those other companies that didn't apply, you know, there's probably a thousand different reasons. Some of them might have been, if they were small, they might have been scared off. Uh, Some of them may have felt that they didn't qualify. There are stories of companies getting loans, looking at it and saying, you know what, I don't think we can justify this under the terms of the, uh, under the terms of the, the, the federal law or the rules that the SBA put through. And so they gave it back. And uh, so it wasn't, free money. It, there were there's there are were strings attached. There are strings attached going forward. The shift now, I you know, was talking to some people this week, is going to be toward the forgiveness part where the company has to fill out a forgiveness form and say, yeah, this is why I think I should get this money and the loan be forgiven. And there's a lot of rules there. It's not just snap. And I know that our colleague Clarissa Hawes, right, wrote about a company this week where the Looks like the president might be going off to jail for PPP fraud already, you know, mm-hmm. already. And uh, so there, there are some risks here, and I guess some companies are probably a little afraid to take them. They probably were. If you think about it on the, let's just say, MC numbers, about 85% of the MC numbers are people with one or two trucks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it only makes up about 15% of the actual trucks on the road. 
you know, most of those trucks are with those mid-sized, smaller mid-sized fleets and, and enterprise fleets. But as a, a small business owner myself, you know, I looked into the PPP. I'm kind of a solopreneur, so I don't have any employees in, in my business. I have a couple contractors, uh, 1099s, and it got really confusing for me whether I, I could apply for a loan, whether I should apply for a loan. So you have about 85% of the, the, the trucking companies out there who are basically owner-operators. And it was probably a little bit confusing for them whether they could apply uh, and, and what strings were attached if they did because they probably didn't have any you know, employees. It was just themselves, solopreneurs driving a truck. So yeah. I think that probably has a lot to do with it. Going back to timing, um, Dr. Jason Miller uh, he's a professor of supply chain and logistics at Michigan State University. He's he just published on FreightWaves.com, kind of analysis of the manufacturing sector, and you kind of see those same timings. He has a graph here uh, that I'm looking at right now that most of the loans were in the first half of April. Uh, I, I think that, you know there's a week in April that that they that they're just missing data because there, there's no activity for for any of the sectors, uh, and it trails off by the first week of May. Uh, the vast, you know, 99% of loans have been made and there's just been very few since then. So it kind of, uh, it kind of echoes back to what you see in the trucking and, and kind of, you know, that, that early wave of loans and then the, the activity has pretty well just died off. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the overall numbers, I think when, when it, the program first expired, they had loaned out about $348 billion. I'm doing this off the top of my head, always a dangerous spot. <laughs> um, and, then, and then the at the end there, when they when the program ended and they still had money on the table, they they had about $130 billion left, which I think means that they had loaned out about a total of $510 to $520 billion, which means I mean, you did go from like $340 to $510. So there was $160 to $170 billion dispersed. Uh, in that second tranche of loans. So, I mean, that's not insignificant, but it's it's about a little more than half of what was dispersed in that first run in April. And again, this is for all companies. I'm going to tell a story that has nothing to do with trucking, but I think it's relevant, Kevin, to what you were saying. I got mm -hmm. a discussion with somebody on Facebook yesterday about the question of churches getting loans. And the fact is, my church got a loan. It was able to, therefore, pay the preschool teachers as well as some of the staff. That's a kind of a mid-sized church, certainly not a mega church, but not a tiny little thing. And this woman said, oh, we're too small to get a loan. I said, no, you're not. I, you know, you're not. She said, we just have a staff of about four or five. I said, well, outside of our teachers, that's all we've got, too. And um, so, you know, you wonder how many small trucking companies kind of had that same mindset. We're too small to do this. Or, well, maybe I'd like to do this, but you know what? I'm a sole proprietor and I'm pretty busy trying to keep my business running. I don't have time to fill this stuff out and go to my banker. Yeah. I, 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 you know, there's a, there's a lot of hitches at, at first. I, I remember it because I was looking into it and saying, well, should I? Should I not? You know? And it was very confusing. And, and you know, I, I'm running, you know, running research and, and editorial over at Freightways. I got the company. I don't have time to to go in, and I didn't really need it at, at all. So I, I just kind of put it on the back burner and, and said, you know, I don't know if I qualify because I don't really have any employees, and I was getting conflicting reports. And then the banks themselves were, were I, I believe, loaning out to their, their customers, you know, their banking customers, 
before any other their applicants as well. So you had those hiccups in, in the program, but uh, it was designed for, for people with three or four or five or, or 10 employees. And I think a lot of people probably that, that qualified and still qualify probably have, uh, you probably need to, to go in and, and look at it now since it's extended and, uh, and we're not nearly out of the woods as we, we might've thought uh, we might see certainly not another major shutdown, but a, a lot of regional uh, slowing in activity and, and some some shutting down. I know in Tennessee starting tomorrow, uh, or at least Chattanooga starting tomorrow, uh, face masks are required in, in all public spaces. So uh, we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, talk a couple of things. First of all, if you had gotten a loan, you were going to give me half, right? That was our deal. Yeah, so it was exactly our deal. Yeah, okay. Um, I, did a little, I did some quick math uh, on the, again, this is all the 150K and up that in the 48th sector, the trucking and warehousing sector, uh, about 875,000 jobs were targeted for saving. And that was about 43 jobs per applicant uh, for or per loan. And that in that 3PL sector is actually about 40,800 jobs. And that was about 51 jobs per loan. I, I do want to talk about banking because- um, I did spend some time going through it, looking for the biggest banks. And what's interesting is that uh, the two banks that had the biggest number of loans, the most the most number of loans, again, not not dollar amount, but just uh, the, the most loans uh, were city were uh, not not Citibank, J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America. Um, and they each had about over 900 loans and uh, there was nobody else close. Uh, I was kind of interested to see what BOM, the old Bank of Montreal, did because, of course, they're a very big lender to the truck mm-hmm. industry. Um, you know, they they were down in like the two hundred number, but uh, again, remember these. You know, Morgan J.P. Morgan had uh, J.P. Morgan Chase had nine hundred eighty four loans, Bank of America nine hundred twenty three loans, but that's through the whole trucking and warehouse sector. You know that that the the, the list of total loans. There, you know, was gigantic, and you know, maybe Bank of Montreal was focused on a much more narrower niche there. So its uh, its numbers were down. I don't think you can draw any conclusion. They're very still. They're cl- very clearly still a big lender to the to the industry. So, um, would you, if if you were recommending, would you tell a, a trucking company that didn't get it to to try to get it sacked together by August sixth? I would, yeah, I, I would. It's there, there's money out there, and you, you don't know what the future is. Going back to uh, to Bank of Montreal or uh, BMO right. is that, um, or yeah, BMO, right? I uh, think they go by BMO. Yeah, BMO. Yeah, I always yeah, B, yeah, yeah, BMO. I mean, they, you know, as as you pointed out in a, a several articles and, and starting to track their their de- default rates, uh, it's a much narrower part of the market. So the bigger the bigger the fleet size. You know the, the the number of fleets uh, drop, you know, exponentially. So I wouldn't take anything from from that. They're they're, they're servicing a, a larger fleet size, so there's there's less customers on that. And then Bank of America and did you say City or, or what's JP Morgan Chase? Yeah, Chase, Chase and Bank of America. You know, they have so many deposits. And, and and customers and depositors that I, I think what the, the 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 top four or five banks have well over fifty percent of of the deposits in America. So on, on those two fronts, it, it shouldn't be too surprising that they were very active in 
in, in the PPP loans. Yeah, I was, well. I, I was just kind of surprised that some of the other big national banks in the U.S., like Wells Fargo or Citibank, mm-hmm. their, their role here was relatively limited. I mean, they had a good chunk of loans, but nothing like Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase had. Uh, I guess the other, the last question we'll discuss is whether these loans uh, have kept capacity alive. And I, again, I don't think you can draw a conclusion here. The fact is, it's always important to remember that at least 60% of these funds were designed to keep people on the job. And I think if a company closes, they probably are closing for reasons other than they can't pay their people. They they would have been in trouble long before that with their lenders and their bankers. Um, so I don't know if being able to keep people alive kept a company alive that was already in trouble. What do you think? I don't think so, especially in, in trucking. Uh, I'm looking here uh, on the manufacturing side, you know, it's PPP loans are said to have saved 26.8% manufacturing jobs. And I think they're probably more susceptible to, uh, to, to, to being shut down if they, they run out of liquidity. But if we, if we think about the, the trucking market and the freight market uh, coming into the crisis late March, you know, we were 30% year over year. The rates were good. Fell off a cliff in April, uh, but that didn't really last too long because it started recovering by by early May, and then in this last thirty days in June, running up to the July Fourth holiday, I mean it's been uh, picking up steam as well. So trucking as an industry has has really fared very well during the last three months uh, compared to to certainly any other industries. Any you know travel certainly travel. Restaurants, entertainment have been uh, slaughtered. Uh, oil's been, you know, topsy turvy and 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 a, a crazy straight. I guess Russia and Saudi Arabia. It seems like ancient history now. Yeah. Got into a pricing war right when uh, the economy was shutting down. In uh, Chesapeake, you know, uh, uh, the the big shell revolutionized or revolutionary company um, uh, declared bankruptcy a, a little bit. I go, but in the trucking industry, it was a really rough right, April and, and early May. But other than that, it's been pretty healthy. I mean, there's a lot of essential goods that that need to be moved, that, that continue to be need need to be moved. Uh, a lot of the manufacturing is now back online. You know, the the big three automakers uh, have the the plants back and going. So, relatively, I I would I would say that the freight market has been been healthy so the PPE loans probably didn't make a huge difference on capacity there's probably you know as you said i mean the, the companies that were going to fail will fail anyway probably with or without ppp right it's interesting because when this program first started up i talked to a few people who said they felt that the uh, some companies couldn't qualify for it because they were doing so well because if you remember, rates soared and mm-hmm. soared in March when the pandemic first hit. as this mad dash to restock shelves and e-commerce exploded, whatever. And then, of course, by the time the loan program kicked in, we were in a very miserable April. So anyway, Kevin, we'll keep looking. We got about five more or six more weeks of this uh, of PPP. I guess maybe about more like a, a month. And uh, we'll see how much more money flows to the sector. Uh, the, the the share of the all the loans dispersed that went to the trucking and warehouse sector had held steady through the whole program at either side of three and a half percent, 3.5 to 3.6 percent of all loans dispersed. I would imagine that's not going to change much. So, Kevin, we want to thank uh, Kevin Hill, the uh, my colleague 
VP of Research, uh, Head of Research at FreightWaves, and also the founder and CEO of Carrier List. He's been our guest today on Drilling Deep. I want to thank all of you for listening. Drilling Deep is the place among FreightWaves family of podcasts, our FreightCast, where we talk about oil, we talk about diesel, and we talk about whatever else we want to talk about. So today was PPP. We'll see what we have next week, and we hope you join us then. I'm John Kingston.